You're listening to Tiger's Eye, Episode 4. appreciative growls fade away as I make the long journey back to my house. I let myself in and exchange a look with my father, who solemnly exits, leaving us alone. I sit down and stare out of the window, listening to the beast breathing. The breaths are ever so slightly less shallow than before. Calmly, I look down at his throat. My mind, some way off. I bear the primary claw on my right paw, which looks enormous next to this little neck. Everything is still. I can hear his heart fluttering in his chest. I think of how hard the blood is going to be to wash out of my boards. The bedding itself, fresh yesterday, will have to be burned. I turn my mind to these practicalities as I envision opening up that throat. I need to get a grip on myself, gritting my teeth and glaring with as much hate as I can muster for this outsider. I extend my claw as far as it will go. Time passes. My claw retracts. Miguel does not stir. I cannot do this. I will not murder a cub. Regardless of what the spirits say, I cannot shake the feeling that the shaman is allowing other elements to guide his decision. At once, I know what I need. I need a second opinion. I rise and step back outside. My father looks at me with quizzical concern. What is it? I was told by Haka to sacrifice the creature. The rest of the tribe seems to agree. But he has a name. It is Miguel. And that means somebody named him. He is from somewhere, and I do not think it has anything to do with demons. Alright, so... Are you going to look for this place? Not at all. That is not my concern. But I can ask another shaman, one who is not so heavily invested in the continuance of this family, what can be done with the outsider. One of the other tribes, then? No, 
I need somebody entirely unbiased. I'm going to seek the Silent One. Harrell, nobody has come back from seeing her for an age. The Silent One may even have died years ago, and it's so dangerous. The Gagaku prowls in the ruins near to her. There's nobody else as wise whom I have heard of, and I'm not scared of monsters. Harrell, please. At least let me come along. I'll carry Miguel. You can hang back and escape if- No. This was entirely my doing. Nobody else must suffer for it. You would die for this tribe. Wouldn't you? Without a thought. But you won't kill this creature for it. It would appear not. Not something so defenseless and in need of his parents. I understand. Can I help? Just tell the others. I'm taking it into the forest to return the body to the river. We'll say the spirits told me that was the best way to make amends. How far are you going to take this cub? As far as my tribe needs me to go. The creature sleeps. Yesterday, I crept from my home, hauling the frame of this poor wretch down and out into the forest. Today, we trek west. And now he sleeps. I sit in the canopy beside the hammock I have constructed for him, keeping a watchful eye on the jungle below. All kinds of delicious and useful beasts pass beneath us. I am tempted to spring down and catch myself some dinner, but the compulsion to bring the carcass back to my family would then be overwhelming, and I cannot waste parts of the body that I would not eat. So I sit. I eat smaller fare, guzzling down a tree frog. Feeding the creature is a lot harder. I have been slipping him small shreds of my dried meat rations over time. His condition is improving between periods of sleep, so I have concluded that this, at least, is safe. I will have to give him different fruits, only one tiny bite every so often, to test him in the same way, until it is established what will not make him vomit so spectacularly. Or perhaps it wasn't the food I gave him at all that did this. Perhaps it was a chill, or white fever after all. Perhaps he is simply weak, and in a land that is new to him. I wonder how far he drifted on that salar branch. It is yesterday. I am a cub. I sit up on my bedding. The streaks of dawn are creeping through the sky. I am entirely unable to sleep. Rao, it's way past time to settle down. Could I have a story, please? You just heard two from Ranach this evening. But that made me want more. I'm not a shaman. I'm no good at telling stories. I want to hear one from you. 
I'll love it. I promise. Well... Please? I, I suppose I could tell you one my own father told me. But this is a legend, not a story. Does that mean it's real? It means... Well, it means somewhere at the bottom of it, there's a truth. Tell me. Actually, now that I think about it, this is kind of appropriate. Because it's about a real live monster that searches for little cubs who won't go to sleep. What kind of monster? He comes at the quietest hours. He is called... The Gagaku. And he travels with absolute silence, gliding through the world. He dresses himself in robes of orange. His claws are longer than any cat's, and his face is stolen from the fiercest lion in all of Rama. He looks for shining eyes that should be shut, and creeps in through your doorway until he is standing beside your bed. Then, the moment you look up and see his terrible face, he snatches you away, and that will be the end of you in this life. I have my eyes closed already. Now, in the long yesterday, the Gagaku got so good at snatching away naughty cubs that the seven elements decided they needed to give us a warning. So they bade him sing a song as he draws near. So if you hear this, you know to be in your bed, with your eyes tightly shut. My father produced a series of long, haunting, musical noises that had me trembling. rang throughout our house, my mother entered the room. Unta, are you scaring our daughter? I'm just about to be asleep, Mama. She wanted a story. So why did you tell her about the Gagaku? He's very real. You both know I have no imagination. Is he really, really real? Put it like this. Are you going to stay awake and find out? Could I just have a cup of water? I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. <clears throat> we won't let him come into this house. We'll certainly put up a half-hearted fight. Probably. Good night, Mama and Dada. Good night, Rao. We love you very, very much. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. I awake, suddenly, and shaking, chastising myself for drifting off while standing vigil. How could I do that? How could I do that? I hold back a roar as faces swim across my mind, escaping back into yesterday. I look to Miguel. He has shifted slightly and the evening is coming in. After many days' travel, we are nearing our destination. It is time for action.
We stand at the steps of a vast structure of stone. Or rather, I stand. He is strapped firmly to my back. His fidgeting is oddly reassuring. I have seen this architecture before. On my hunt, I have passed through the skeletons of ancient buildings and spied the beginnings and endings of bridges, long ago collapsed and borne away by the current. I have lived my life close to the shadows of this forgotten world as one touches the edges of dreams. All around me in this uncharted kingdom, the jungle has fought to reclaim the land, bursting forth through the paving, weaving around balustrades, throttling the powerful stone over ages so long that everywhere I look it is surrendering, crumbling, giving itself over to the will of Rama. The steps before me are a carnival of mosses and lichen, a russet cascade creeping down towards the jungle floor. As I pace up them, my claws extend slightly, gripping the treacherous terrain. I peer through the archways, expecting at any minute for the Gagaku to emerge. In my journey from cub to adult, the bedtime story developed. Reports came in of sightings of this demon of the ancient world in the ruins to our west. We held ceremonial dances from out of darkest antiquity beside the fires. These enacted the coming of this being, his challenge by our warriors, and his subsequent departure, in the hope that this would appease him with a respectful show of strength, so that he would not come calling. But now I am in his home, a place that has occupied my slumbering thoughts in times gone by. I fight to remind myself of my adult frame and my ability to fend off and evade attackers. I am no longer a cub, and I am not simply trespassing. I have a job to do, and superstition will not deter me, though the prospect has got me thinking deeply. Journeying deeper inside, we pass through winding, narrow streets that close around us. I try not to make a sound, but I am clumsy in here. I cannot see in enough directions, and though the stars wheel overhead, the shadows throw unfamiliar shapes against every wall. Meagle says something. I growl softly at him to be quiet. He says something else in return. It does not sound entirely polite. There is a noise above me and to the left and I whirl around to spy a horned ibex picking through the ruins above. Its yellow eyes narrow as it spots me, and we regard one another a moment. Then it turns and struts away from my sight. In a fit of frustration, I'm bound up and scale the nearest building, using the stronger stonework as paw holds and claiming the top to survey the landscape. I am looking at a labyrinth. It is at this point that I surmise most cats turn back, daunted by the prospect of traveling further into the heart of this place and being unable to escape. But I have little choice. In the distance, I can see an enormous temple rearing up above the myriad rivulets of stone. From its front, the great head of a lion is depicted, set 
at a dizzying height to survey the lands. Though it has eroded over time, this baleful sight has my blood rushing. I am transfixed. Defying my progress on the ground, I set off over the rooftops, hurtling over the bones of this place towards the face of my forefathers. I spring, drop, scrabble, rebound, treating this as my hunting ground. The wind is in my whiskers again, and Meagle cries out in fright. No, excitement. I leap down to the street and compose myself. Suddenly more wary of the spell this little beast appears to have over me. That sensation was not something I was expecting, or even willing, to share. I pass under the lofty chin of the lion's head high above me. Close up now I can make out its construction from thousands of flagstones. The eyes are hollow and look like they lead into rooms that can be accessed from below. I scan the periphery for secret staircases. But on turning toward the temple itself, my breath is stolen from me. In front of us now is a great space of stone, different to that of the streets we just traversed. This material is far smoother, with a mixture of colors playing across the surface of the slabs. It has also been maintained swept clear of dust and plant life. At intervals along the wall, torches burn, illuminating this magnificent hall. Somebody actually lives within this temple and takes pride in that. I am more disturbed by that fact than any other scenario I have encountered in this place. I raise my head and survey the vast interior. There is nowhere to hide. I can see far into the distance, under this roof which stretches above us, adorned with... I have never seen anything like it. Drawings on wood and stone I have seen. My friend Lamal once depicted an elaborate hunt upon the wall of a cliff, stretching out ten feet wide. The size of this painted ceiling leaves my jaw hanging. It is awe-inspiring and beyond beautiful. I can see the birth of Rama blossoming from a flower of stars, the water and the wind rushing in on either side to clothe her. At her feet is the bedrock of earth, and above her the sun blazes down. This is just one of the images that stretches across the ceiling. Each is part of the greater design. Each retells a part of the mythology of how our world came into being. I can only recognize about half of them. I am stilled, thinking about how much has been lost to us. Since this was first enjoyed by the people, now long gone from this land. There is a sound. A song. One that turns the blood inside me to ice. Miguel gasps, and I swing around. I realize I've been turning in circles to bank out the imagery and have ended with my back to the hall. 
now, before me, not thirty yards away, stands the Gagaku. You have been listening to Tiger's Eye. Written, edited, and produced by Alex Shaw with a full cast. Rao, performed by Maureen Foley. Hunter and Miguel, performed by Alex Shaw. Aisha, performed by Loretta Saylor. Presenter, Matt Wardle. The main theme is Agent in Shanghai by 1M1 Music, courtesy of Shockwave Sounds. You also heard Long Note 3, Taffy Maradi, Frozen Star, and Whimsy Groove by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Our special sponsors this month were Nick Grugan, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, Maureen Foley, James Dower, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisham, Livio Dela Cruz, Scott Corzine, and Erish Traverse. And to everyone else who has been supporting us on the Patreon, a big thank you. Come to the Digital Drift Forum to discuss these shows with the fanbase, or you can post messages directly on the Patreon feed. If you aren't able to support New Century with your dollars, then there are of course other ways you can help it grow, and those are four- or five-star iTunes reviews. We all know this ain't your average podcast. And if you can make the time to say a few kind words in a review... That all helps the show gain visibility and gets it into the ears of new listeners. And finally, a big shout-out to Ian Hopwood this week, who not only left us an iTunes review, a lovely one, but is constructing life-size replicas of the Clementine Mace and one of Harau's spears. That's true dedication, folks. Ian's a white scarf through and through. Plus, a special final thank you to Antonio Torreson, our resident artist who created the incredible imagery you've all been enjoying since the YouTube videos of the Cartographer's Handbook. You'll be seeing his Gagaku artwork on the forum and the Patreon feed. 